Hey, I'm Sam Pressler. And I'm PJ Walsh. And welcome to In Stitches, the podcast that explores the humanity and humor. Today we have on Steve Maison. Steve Maison is an old friend of mine. Uh, met in 2004, Sam. We did a trip overseas to entertain the troops in Iraq, and we've been good friends since. And I'm excited to share his story. Yeah, it's a story that you know, of, of someone who was diagnosed with cancer and said he had five years to live and set out to achieve his wildest dream, which was to be a comedian performing on Letterman. And he achieved that wildest dream, which is enough for a movie, which he got. But what we explore in this conversation, what's really interesting is what comes after you achieve that wildest dream. And that's something we talk a lot about here and we're excited to, to share with you. So without further ado, Steve Maison. Welcome to In Stitches. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys. Since we started this, Steve, yeah. just so you know, you are at the top of my list of guests to get. And as this started forming into what it's becoming, uh, which In Stitches is about humanity and humor, both sides of it, more and more, I wanted you on. Oh, awesome. Very excited for our listeners to uh, hear your hear story and your perspective and your humor dude because you're one of the best people i know oh awesome well that makes me feel good thanks thanks buddy and th thanks i'm glad you're at the top of the list i hope you i hope you guys will work harder on the list though if i was yeah. at the top I, I well, for, for what for what it's worth you were very low on my list and which is why you're <laughs> not uh <laughs> you're like our eighth episode or something <laughs> <laughs> So maybe we start at the beginning and would love for you to just kind of begin by you know, describing what your childhood was like. Yeah, I was born in a log cabin and <laughs> no, uh, I was born in Illinois, which I think might be one of the original uh, homes of the log cabin, uh, you know, uh, story <laughs> fable. Uh, but I was not. It was a, a suburban Chicago, uh, probably lower middle class family. I think to, uh, everyone thinks they were poor, right? right? <laughs> Every, like, isn't that a weird thing? Like, no, no one's ever like, I grew up rich. <laughs> but it was suburbs. It was uh, it was kind of that that John Hughes area of Chicago from the 80s. Growing up, the, the, I, I think two things kind of formed my humor to, to kind of get me on the track maybe to be a, a stand-up comic later. I was kind of a, a mistake baby. Like there's a there's my brother and sister a year apart and then there's like an eight year gap <laughs> me. So I, I think my parents weren't, weren't, weren't planning on me or having any kids and then I was a surprise. So I was like the kid by the time they had me, it was a lot of like, yeah, just keep yourself busy. You know, like we're, we're doing our own thing. Like they were they were done parenting, I think by that point. By that, just for attention, I think you 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 look for attention then, especially as the youngest kid, you're 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 third in line for everything. It was obvious that humor was the thing that would get my parents' attention. They were both very funny people. My sister and my brother were both very funny. And then I noticed that was what got them attention with each other is when they were cracking each other up. So then that quickly became my thing um, to try and like learn from them <laughs> like like I, to me to me it was like they were the masters you know and I was I was growing up and they're like oh my mom's got kind of more of a smart ass you know uh sense of humor my dad is is kind of corny and he's got dad jokes but they're pretty good and he's he's, he's kind of a physical comedian too like so it was like taking from everything and then seeing if I could mold it all together to get their attention and uh then on top of that my dad my dad uh he was a, a an alcoholic, a functioning alcoholic, but uh, an alcoholic that ca that caused some, you know, strain. My parents got divorced when I was ten, um, at a time when 
you know, divorce wasn't the, as common as it is now. So I, I felt like I was the only kid in my class that had a divorced parent at that time. I remember it was kind of, uh, you, you felt weird. Like my mom was even like, look, don't talk about it. Like it was like a weird thing. Like don't tell people your dad and I are divorced. It's like, I think they're going to know when they come over and never see dad again, you know, but that was the, the kind of thing like put it away. But anyways, one of those things that the alcohol part, my dad coming home drunk or, you know, screwing up the car or getting a, you know, a DUI or a, the cops would drive him home or something like that. We would be shocked or sad about it for a day. And then the next day I would notice my mom, my brother and my sister, they would start joking about it. Mm. They would start making fun of my dad. And like, if, if he came in drunk and he fell on the you know floor, like it was like, oh my God, drag him to the bed. And then the next morning, my brother would be imitating my dad falling. And I know that sounds caustic or, or sad or like, that, that was also what saved us. That was, mm. rather than hanging on to this awful thing and being like, this is terrible, we, we made light of it. And that's, that's just how, um, yeah, kind of life unfolds. And I think, I think that's the, one of the through lines that I, I see. I'm sure everyone has that. But that, that's kind of what pushed me more, I think, toward, toward stand-up comedy when I got into it later. You know, you know what I was just started chuckling about is uh, yeah. we, we both lived through the time where cops would drive you home. Yes, when you were drunk. exactly. Right. You know, like <laughs> right. that ain't around anymore. But I remember that back right. in back in my youth. They're like, ah, we'll, we'll get you home, buddy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Sometimes, right. Or they'd even they'd even point you out. They'd be like, how close to home are you? I'm, I'm just down the street. Okay, go ahead. Follow the, follow the lights. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, exactly. And again, thank God that that time is gone. But uh, so, yeah, it was a different time. So you had so you had humor. It was like part of your life from a coping perspective, right? There was yeah, this, it was the yeah. language. It was it was kind of coping with this presence in your family of your father not being um, like something. What you know, something not yeah, being traditional. Right. Yeah, yeah, and then. But there's also this flip that switch for you of like you are you became a comedian. So like maybe who were the comedians that you started watching? Like yeah. who were your favorite comedians? How do you start thinking about this? Not just in like humor as a coping perspective, but like kind of comedy as an art form. Yeah. So it did. It was those those two. I think that's what it was. That it was on two levels like that. That there was a reward aspect to it with my family, and then also the coping uh, aspect of it. So it was the, these two angles. So it it, it that was going already. And then my parents loved uh, Johnny Carson, and I did too. I, I still love him. Um, but we would watch them, uh, him together. And then around 82, a couple of things happened. Uh, and I was 12 at that time. <clears throat> uh, one, uh, right after Johnny Carson, David Letterman started coming on. He got his own show and come on right after Carson. So my parents would go to bed, and then I'd stay up. I think I had a black and white TV maybe in my room or something that <laughs> I would turn it on. And uh, all of a sudden there was this guy that um, was from Indiana. He didn't seem as, as polished as Johnny Carson. He, he seemed like a Midwest guy, like, like not, he was older than me, of course, but he seemed more like me at a gap in his tooth. He, he wasn't particularly good looking, you know? Uh, and he had all these, uh, I had seen comedians on, on uh, Carson before, but again, they seemed much more ingrained in showbiz. Uh, they seemed like the old kind of vaudeville guys and they're great. And I loved them. Uh, but all of a sudden, uh, Letterman, his humor was different. It was, it seemed much hipper and younger, uh, closer to what, uh, me and my, my, you know, <laughs> young teenage, you know, young, young teen friends would laugh at. It was sillier. 
uh, it was kind of anti-Carson a little bit, anti-establishment. It was making fun of him, himself, his own show, which I hadn't seen someone do before. And uh, so I, I fell in love with him and I fell in love with the comedians that he had on, like he'd, he'd have on, um, you know, uh, Kinison and Andy Kaufman and these guys that would never be on Johnny Carson um, until they <laughs> were big from uh, David Letterman. And at the same time, so I had seen these that that you could be a comedian, but I did. I did. I guess I didn't realize that you could do that as a living. I understood if you were a funny person, maybe you would get a show, that kind of thing. But I didn't understand that there were comedians going out and doing a comedy. So the the comedy boom was really starting around then. And uh, we got cable one day. I came home, and uh, again, I thought we were poor. And I remember <laughs> my mom saying, "We got cable," and I was like. We got cable. Are we rich? Are we like, it seemed like <laughs> such a big deal. I mean, no, everyone has cable now, but it was such a big deal. Like the people, I remember like in grade school, if you heard someone had HBO, you're like, HBO? Oh yeah. What the, like that was a big deal. Big and, deal. Uh, and, or if they had the first people who got a VCR, I was like, forget it. A VCR? <laughs> you have a VCR? Steve, my dad brought home a Betamax VCR. <laughs> A Betamax. I was yeah. like, did you do any research? You can't get tapes for these. <laughs> <laughs> like the whole, we're like, VCR! What's, what's right. beta? What's Betamax? <laughs> it's a little bit cheaper. I got, I got a you, deal. Yeah. Watching one movie for five years straight. <laughs> you were living high on the hog for three months. You were like, they were... Uh, that's so, that's so funny. Yeah. You, you just, you cash in on the wrong end. Um, but yeah, I remember those, like those hallmarks, like I really did. It was a big moment to, to, to get that. So anyways, the first night we got, um, uh, cable, we did have HBO when we first got it. I'm sure it was like a deal. And, uh, we turned it out, it was around Christmas. And the first thing we watched with me and my mom, I think, uh, my, my brother and sister, my sister was away at college or something. So it was kind of, I was just home alone with my mom at that point is, um, uh, Rich Little's Christmas Carol. So uh, it was him doing all the stuff. It was funny, you know, but it's Rich Little was kind of a Carson guy. This kind of goes to uh, that stuff. And then my mom goes, okay, I'm going to bed. And I stayed up and Richard Pryor Live mm. was on HBO. And I was just blown away. First of all, I had never heard anyone kind of loosely talk like he did. You know what I mean? With the, the way he casually talked about sex or casually swore or, I mean, it was, you know, it, it just wasn't, I had seen him on stuff. I had seen, you know, movies with him, but it, it wasn't this just uh, gritty and uh, dark. And then him talking about his family and his relationships and how messed up he was and just being so honest about it. And then that there was a crowd of 3000 people watching him do it. It was my first realization that was like, oh, that's this maybe not viable for me, but it is a viable choice to become a comedian like that. You could go and do that. Like you don't have to have the movie or a sitcom. You could go and just perform for people. Uh, so that was a light bulb. And from that moment, I was, I, I was like, I am going to be a comedian someday. I am going to do it. I want to do what he's doing. There. I want to, I want to make fun of my, I'm already making fun of my family with them. I want to take it to the streets. I want the, the people know how to know, need to know how screwed up my family is and how I am, you know? And, uh, and so that coinciding with then then Letterman was was like I'm going to become a comedian I'm going to be on the Letterman show someday so uh, those were the two things that the impetus for like this this will happen someday you know which which becomes right. you know um, uh, a good plan but also you know uh, someday later becomes a little bit of a crutch mm -hmm. where you're like eh, 
you know, yeah, it's easy to keep pushing people off, things off like that. So Steve, I, I, I do want to know, you know, kind of what your story, what your story was and kind of going yeah. from, okay, standup is something that I, I could, I, I saw prior do it. I, I saw yeah. these guys on Letterman do it. This is something that like I can actually do. What was that process like for you of actually going from like, this is something I might be able to do that this is yeah. something I'm doing. So that's a little bit of that tangent story I told goes to that. Mm. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, wanting to do it, feeling it inside, like, I'm going to do this, but not even, t- I didn't even tell, like, I wouldn't even say it to my mom, you know, who I was mm-hmm. probably closest with that time, or my dad, these people that uh, I loved being funny with, or my friends, my close, I would never admit that, that I wanted to be a comedian, because again, it just seems so, I grew up in the Midwest, I, I didn't know anyone, like, I imagine if you grew up in LA, at least, like, you would know someone who was in that business, you knew someone who worked on a show or something, it just seemed ridiculous to be part of the entertainment business. Um, everyone I knew was very stable stuff. Anytime you would talk even about like, I would love to do this. Like, I want to be a baseball player. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Like my family was like, you're not going to be a baseball player. Pick something stable. You know what I mean? It wasn't like, that was the attitude then. It was, it wasn't like today where they'd be like, okay, let's, let's get you in a camp and let's do that. (laughs) Like we're going to do everything we can so that you're going to live this dream. And then later you fall back on my, my mom was the opposite. She was like, you're going to learn to be an accountant. And then, yeah, you can, you can try your baseball thing after accounting class. Like you know, that was, that was like, so it was, it was never, uh, it was a thing I had to learn and it took me a long time to learn to, to share where we live in a sharing society. Now the world has turned that way that, that before it was, you would, you would keep stuff inside like that. And, and now it's in it and arguably it's gone too far where people share every single thing, but that's literally what ended up happening is the world's come that way that now social media allows us to share every single thing we're thinking. Uh, and there's bad parts of it, but there's also these good parts that you can put this idea out there, whatever it might be. And, and people end up helping you or directing you at least that direction. So I had no idea how to make it happen. So I, I just lived a, a pretty stable life with that in the back of my head. I, I went and I joined the Navy when I was 18. Um, I ended up uh, going into some, uh, this. they lured me with this nuclear program in the Navy that was very tough, very hard, mm-hmm. and I failed out of it. <laughs> uh, and then I served aboard a submarine for, for uh, four years after that. And then went to college. So all these just normal things uh, afterwards. And then I moved to California. My sister was living in uh, Northern California, just outside San Francisco. She had two kids. They were like uh, one and two at the time. And I wanted to see them grow up. I wasn't going to have kids uh, anytime soon. So I wanted to, I moved out there from Chicago. And within, uh, I think it was three or four months, her husband got a job back in Chicago and they picked up and moved back to Chicago. <laughs> so I was, I was like, it was like, all right, do I follow them back to Chicago or in there? And I, I was like, all right, you know what? You're, you're out here by yourself. I had heard, I remember from following comedy growing up that, that Jake Johansson and Robin Williams and Dana Carvey had all come from San Francisco. So I started looking into it and there, there was a, a robust comedy scene in San Francisco. And I, I was like, you're out here alone. Your family just left you. You've been holding on to this dream for at that point, point 16 or 17 years and never had the balls to do it. Go out and just, just try it. Like, just so you can say you at least tried it. And uh, I went to a place, I found an open mic in San Francisco that was at a laundromat. <laughs> 
It was called the Brainwash mm. Cafe and Laundry, but it was basically a laundromat that had a cafe in it, and you would go and perform while people did their laundry. And uh, I showed up at eight o'clock. It was a show up sign up. I showed up at seven thirty. No one else was there. I signed up. I knew I was smart enough to put myself third on the list because I didn't want to go first. I was like in a. I, I was so '90s comic. I had a blazer on and a, a tie, and uh, I was ready. And people came in and looked at me like, "What is this idiot?" You know. Uh, but they just kept pushing me down the list. They didn't let me go third. <laughs> They're like, "Oh, you're new. Okay, yeah, we're gonna put you up later." Wow. So I I had drove into the city from the East Bay. So I had worked all day, drove in the hour into the city, signed up, and then I'm waiting at this place. And they kept bumping me. I didn't go on till like 11:30 as the place was closing down, and it was just me, the guy before me the host, a guy, you know, the guy that worked there cleaning up and then some girl folding, like kind of looking up from folding her laundry. And, uh, the only electricity in there was the static clean. That was the only vibe that was going on. But, uh, it was so cheesy. I think I got one laugh, but that was enough. I mean, you guys know, like that, that's, it, it didn't let me, I know all these people are like, I killed the first time. I, I so didn't kill the first time, but I did get one laugh on something. And uh, so, I mean, the, you could not wipe the smile off my face. I remember walking to the car and I felt like Judd Nelson at the end of Breakfast Club. I remember doing like a fist <laughs> right. bump. Like I did what I said I was going to do. It took me this time. I'd never shared this dream with anyone. And um, it, it, I had started. I, you know, and in the back of my head, I was like, yeah, I should be on, the, I should be on Letterman within, a, within six, seven months. <laughs> sure, that wasn't a great set. I'll clean that up. But those jokes are quality. Those people didn't understand. But um, yeah, so that, that's what it took. I mean, a long, long time of, of keeping that dream in the back, back of my head. But yeah, just the, the balls. I remember even seeing like a Road Rules. Remember that MTV show? <laughs> Oh yeah, uh, where where they force the people to do comedy, and I remember like my like sweating oh my god, watching so it bad. like before I started like it felt so like oh my god can you imagine being thrown in front of an audience and them rejecting you live like uh, it's something I take for granted because it's the first thing people say like when they find out you're a comedian they're like I could never get up and do that how do you do that and now it's second nature I mean I still get excited and nervous about it but it's a different thing. Uh, but the first time, like one of my, one of my close friends in comedy talks about like them pulling him backstage the first time. And there's an exit door right there. And he goes, when they said my name, I was equally <laughs> likely to go out that. Right. And he wasn't, he's like, I'm not trying to be funny. Like it, it, it's that it's so you forget how scary it is the first time. So, uh, literally years of, of building up to just, just get the hoodspot to try it. You also started developing your crew up there, though, right? Like Gary yes. and Lee, you started putting, because this is essential in, yes, in the, the community. Yeah. Yeah. And, they care, uh, and, and again, and, that's, that's like I said, how I, I said at the beginning, I can't imagine my comedy career without you, PJ. I mean, there's just people you meet along the way that help you. And uh, there's probably in that first year, like I said, how I thought I was going to be on the, you know, a TV show in, in eight months. Like you just quickly realize it's a, it's a marathon. And you, you takes a long time. I remember Greg Proops, I remember reading something saying it seven years till you even find your voice. And it, it was like, well, that's ridiculous. And then even, I, I got, pa I got twice past seven years at 15 years. I was like, I still, I'm still learning. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's so tough, but those are the right finding friends and finding other people, your peers in it that, 
that get what you're doing or whether they get it or not, they're just supportive. And they're like, they're going through the same thing. It, it you know, it goes, it's almost a military thing. It really is like a, you're in the foxhole with the, you know, <laughs> these guys, like, like, Ooh, that was a rough one out there. You really, really, you took some action and we all went down tonight, but we did it together. And, you know, you, you can laugh about it. It goes back to the same thing, a little coping. You make fun of each other. Um, yeah. Hurry up and wait. <laughs> Lots of drives. Get into some place for seven minutes. Yes. You're in the back. Oh, yeah. PJ, absolutely. we've talked about this. There's, you know, yeah. when you uh, when you do well, you kill. When you when you do poorly, you bomb. Like, you know, you call, yes. you know, comics call non-comic civilians. Like, there's there's a lot of, there's yes. a lot of parallels. A lot. <laughs> right. Oh, 100%. Yeah. How much, how, how long you got in? How much time? How much, how much time you been in, right? Yeah. And what's even more interesting is it, like, if the audience goes off the rails and we feel it's the audience's fault, they become the enemy to every single comedian. Like every, if, like, if, if they mess with Steve, I'm coming up and I'm destroying them. I'm like, do you guys know who the hell that guy is? You, like, it, it, there is that, that is that mentality for sure. 100%. Yeah. We'd rather go. We'd rather go back to Denny's, sit back, and and be have <laughs> yeah. camaraderie, and be like, "Look, we'll never be invited back <laughs> to that place." But fuck them, man. We're in this shit together. You know, exactly it's so right. true. So true. <laughs> it's so true. I never put it all together. How military it is. It really ends up being it's, like that. Yeah. So you, Steve, what what was the process from being, you know, you're you're the last open micer at at a laundromat coffee shop yeah. o- open mic, which I, I will say that every person who's lived in San Francisco and or has done comedy in San Francisco has a has a brainwash story, which I just I love. Um, yeah. But what, what was that? And you found out. I was so sad. Uh, you you found out they've closed it. I mean, this thing had been going Two for years 20, ago, yeah. twenty years. Like it just nuts. Moment of silence Wild. for brainwash. RIP. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, so it was just, just going out. I had a, a, a day job. I, I lucked out. Um, <clears throat> there, there's, there's those things. I think there's so much luck to, uh, you know, a career and a life really. I mean, I, I, I'm, I feel lucky to have, have found the friends I have uh, through it. Um, at that time when I started, I, I ended up, luckily my sister bailed on me in a city that was known for mm-hmm. good comedy. Luckily, you know, I didn't move to Omaha or something for her. Um, I had a job, uh, that was, that was pretty stable and would give me time off to go do comedy gigs. Uh, and it was, it was one of those gigs that was nine to five and I could leave at five and, and not, you know, think about it again. So I could go and do a couple open mics every single night, drive into the city. Um, and I had a car that was a big thing, uh, especially, uh, amongst comics and uh, in San Francisco, it was not a driving town. And then most of the older comics had DUIs and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, they either didn't have a car or they weren't allowed to drive. So any, any person who did have a car, you immediately, if, if, you know, jumped up three spots on the, the comedy level because you could drive these people to their gigs and they would get you stage time. And then, uh, yeah, I think after probably two years or so of, of doing as many open mics, I had a calendar on my desk. And, and this is the, the, one of the things I do think, like envisioning it, sharing, the, sharing it with other people, that stuff is so powerful. And like I said, I really love how the world, we, we trash social media and I'm, it deserves it a lot. But there's also the part that we are a much more sharing society than we used to. I think that's a good thing. We're putting those connect, connectivity, you know, things much closer together so that if you want to do something someone else can help you with it and 
that's kind of what it was. I was, I would just envision it on my counter on my desk. I'd write how many uh, open mics I did that week on each day and I would grade myself and, and, and uh, go out and do it each night. And after a couple of years, I got good enough that the clubs were like, okay, yeah, start calling us for work. And you would then branch out further clubs further North or South or in a different state. And, uh, and then luckily when, um, I lost my job. Uh, it just, you know, the, the economy tanked in 03 or so. I had enough comedy work that I could do that, start doing that full time. It, it was good and bad, <clears throat> that lesson. One of the things that was tough about it is uh, every, everything had come to me. Like it was just like, it was that Midwest mentality. Work hard, learn how to do something. And you work hard and people will help you to what you want to do. You know what I mean? They'll, they'll tell you, hey, come with, you meet, I meet PJ on the road. Oh my God, dude, you're funny. You should call uh, Frank up in, uh, you know, in, in Nevada and he'll, he'll get your work. That kind of thing. Things came to me. So I was kind of, that was my attitude about the Letterman thing was, was yeah, someday I'll, I'll get on Letterman. Eventually I'll be working somewhere and someone who knows the Letterman people or the Letterman booker will hear about me through someone else. So I wasn't chasing it. I was just kind of going through those motions. And I want to say, Sam, to tell you on this step as a comedian, there's a big tent pole that you blew over that I don't think people who aren't comedians understand is that calendar. It's like, yeah. I did the same thing. You're looking at that calendar, it's color coordinated and how many days. And then <laughs> one day, you know, one day you look at that calendar and you have more days of being paid comedy and you're looking for a day off. And yes. that step, that step kicks your shoulders back in a way of, yeah. mm -hmm. I'm doing this. I'm a comic now, Yeah, you know? You're 100%, PJ. In fact, I remember, so I went to college before, like Navy college and then <clears throat> in the in California and working a day job, but doing comedy then. And I remember sending an email to a friend that I knew from college and putting, I, I had started having at the bottom of my thing, comedian on the bottom of my thing. It was just, just the kind of where people would say, you know, your phone number and stuff. I had changed that to comedian. And, and he wrote back and he was like, oh, someone's a comedian now. And I was again, I was embarrassed <laughs> at first. And then I, and I was like, oh, but yeah, I am. I'm, I'm getting I'm getting paid to do this and I, I'm proud of it. And I, 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 I could do it. But it was a weird it was a weird thing. But yeah, then all of a sudden you forget the, the, those marks, those benchmarks along the way. And, and that was one of them where you, you I am a comedian. Yeah. Now we're going to now we're going to step into, uh, you know, the next section, which we visited. Yeah, visit quite a bit, and yes, yeah. For me personally, this is also where I went on my own journey. So as we go through this, we'll I'll have to say what I have to say about it after because yeah. it's just it is. Yeah, but, uh, I'll give you guys at your height. At your height, yes, please, and please, Shannon, because yeah, I've I've told the story so much. There's a there's a <laughs> book, there's a documentary that covers it, uh, but I'll give you the the brief story about it, and then we can <laughs> dig wherever we want. Um, so. I moved down from San Francisco to, to Los Angeles uh, about that time, 2003, doing comedy down here for a couple of years and uh, coming home uh, with a friend, Gary Cannon, a mutual friend uh, of PJ and I's. Um, we're coming home from the improv and I started having some pain and I was like, you got to drive. I was in the back seat. And then the, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, when I get home, she's like, I think you have food poisoning, which the improv is probably known for food poisoning. <laughs> um, but it wasn't, I end up in the, in the hospital and they're like, Oh, your appendix burst. That's what they think happened. They're like, we're going to do an appendectomy. I wake up and now a different doctor's there and he's an oncologist. He introduced himself and I know that's not good. <clears throat> and he says, we found tumors all over your liver. 
we, we know they didn't come from there. We're going to have to start doing some tests. And then we go on, on a two-month thing where they, they try and find where all these tumors on my liver, they're cancerous. Uh, they find it in my intestines. It's stage four cancer. I get a worst case scenario that I have uh, five years to live. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a shock. I went from nothing, like feeling healthy, feeling good is, you know, living comedy, living my dream to all of a sudden, you might not be here five years from now. And I'm not a worst case scenario guy. I, I'm, I'm one of those guys that pushes back. I'm going to prove them wrong, that kind of thing. Um, but you have, to, you have to realize if someone who's a doctor much smarter than me is saying that, uh, I have to consider it. And so, uh, I was like, if I really only have five years, what do I want to, what do I want to accomplish in those five years? I, I ended up, uh, getting married. And the, the really big thing was like, I realized then I had been waiting for this Letterman thing. That was the dream in my life was to, to get, to get into comedy and, and get on Letterman. And, uh, I had been waiting for it to come just figuring, yeah, just keep working hard and it'll eventually come to you. And now I realized I might not be able to if I'm saying someday that'll happen, the someday might not be there. I might not be there when someday comes. So I gotta, you gotta start chasing it instead of just inactively like waiting for it to come to you. That sounds like, oh, like I got to, you know, I got diagnosed with cancer. And like, then I just said, you know, if not now, when, and I got, I decided I'm gonna get on Letterman. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm a little incredulous of like the the straight line nature of that. Yeah, so like, it's not at all. Yeah. What, what, what was that in that moment? Like <laughs> yes. in the moment from when you, you got your diagnosis to just deciding like what went on, like how, how did, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Go? <laughs> it, there, there's months to probably two years of, of, of just what the hell, like I said, yeah, I'm trying yeah. to give you the encapsulated version. So I'm glad you asked that. Yes. It's it. Cause I don't want to gloss over that. I don't want to make it sound like it's not, I mean, there's depression, uh, denial, lots of anger. I mean, like, I, again, I was, I was 34 mm. at the time. I was like, what the hell? Like I have cancer that can end my life. Probably like just ridiculous. Like, uh, it, a, a lot of, uh, why me? Um, a lot of like, why do anything like it took a long time to get to that point to, to turn it on its head. It was, uh, I remember being saying my whole family, my friends, everyone rallied around me, but then a week later they were all back at work, you know? And then two weeks later I was like, Oh shit, I got to get back. I, I still have to pay rent for these five years, I guess. <laughs> uh, like, so I have to work. Um, so it, the routine angered me at first that like life did go on after that diagnosis for my, everyone else. And I, and I had this, what I imagined like a, for lack of a, you know, pun deadline <laughs> out, out there somewhere. It, it, it made me sad. It made me angry. Um, it made me angry at, at my friends and family that, that the life went on for them. But it, that routine also saved me a little bit because, because I had to jump back in then to do some work. And through that, slowly you, you again I, I at least felt after there were there were two three months where I spent a lot of time in the hospital a lot of time getting trying them trying to find where the the tumors had come from going through all these tests and stuff and and I felt like a cancer patient when I came out the other side of that I didn't my day-to-day -day, I still felt healthy you know what I mean I knew that there were tumors I had on my liver that they were going to track and scan uh and that they said we're going to have some effect on me but I I could still exercise. I could still walk around. I could still go on stage. I didn't, I, I did, I wasn't attached to an IV. 
I wasn't in a wheelchair or using a cane or losing my hair for that reason. I was just, it was just normal male pattern baldness was going on. <laughs> then it started to turn a little bit like, okay, listen, maybe you're, you're, this is, you're very lucky that you get to do this. I was still going to oncologist and I would be in a, in a room with people who, who were older than me and much sicker than me. And I, it, it was like, oh, geez, you're, you not that you want a good kind of cancer. It's like, well, you, but you're these five years, you're probably mm-hmm. going to be okay. You're going to be able to live whatever life you want uh, during that time. And so that slowly through, you know, my, luckily my wife and my family and everyone kind of yanking me a bit out of the depression and the anger of it all. Uh, that's kind of when everything came out, like find some, what are you going to do with this? Like, okay, you got it. Is it, is that going to be your defining thing? It's like, Oh, you got cancer. And five years later you die. Or are you going to do something with it? Are you going to do something with those five years? So that was the, that became the thing. Like I said, my, my uh, just talking on the love part, like that, that got me through that. My girlfriend at the time, we had been dating six months at that time when I get this diagnosis. She's the same age. Uh, a woman in her 30s deciding to stay with someone who might not be there in five years, who's, who, that's the starting a family time for a woman. And we, uh, like I said, knowing me six months, I don't know if it, the roles reversed, I would have stayed with her. And that not, not saying I loved her, just, just the practicality of it. If she wants to start a family with someone, I'm not the person to do it. And she stuck with me. Um, I think feeling that love and feeling someone make a choice like that for you, uh, that helped me immensely. We ended up getting married. Um, and, and then it was that. It was finding direction for that five years. Uh, making it more than just what I had been doing, the routine, the, I had found my stable part in comedy. Like I had, yeah, I had finally found comedy. I was making a living at it, which was great. And I was puffing my chest out about it, but I had found what my mom had said, just the stable part of it. I had just been like, okay, work hard at it. And yes, you're working these places and that's enough. But I wasn't, I wasn't as passionate about it. Like when I had it, like, okay, get out there, do this. And uh so it was like anyone has i think you know there's so much military stuff we we talk about together these people who've who've had something happen to them in their life um that changes it like that i think all those people all of a sudden have a new perspective on the value of each day of you know whether it be you know living each day like it's your last or uh the thing that came to me like is uh if, if if you're not chasing your dream you're already dead right like that's that's it. So it, it was, okay, you, you're doing comedy. The big part of this was, was the Letterman thing. And, and so that slowly became uh, that thing. So that, yeah, that took a year. I glossed over it, but yes, that's, that's the deep part of it. Yeah. Because then you became, after a year, you became laser focused. That became the goal. Mm-hmm. Who decided, all right, I'm going to document this journey. It's a husband and wife team. They're so talented and they're such great storytellers. We've already, you've all read a book before, right? It's a cliche. The book was better than the movie because they, they make a book or there's a story and then they make it in a movie and the movie's not good, right? Because it, it's all about the quality of the storyteller. And these two are just amazing storytellers. So someone might've taken my story, which, you know, again, sure it's an, it's, it's an interesting story, but it can still be told poorly. So uh, they, when I met them, they were a husband and wife who had just graduated from UCLA film school. Her name is Joke, which was very fitting. And his name is Biagio. I had all my comedy sets on VHS tapes. Uh, and so Biagio, I met him through a friend, Sue Nelson. I don't know if you know her, knew her, PJ. She referred me to him to 
take all my VHS tapes and get them onto CD and DVD. Again, now there would be another step to, to just have on digital. So that's how I meant, that's what they were doing right out of film school is, is making actors reels and doing stuff like that. So we became friends. And then uh, again, this is, this is before Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all this kind of stuff that, that would be the avenue now. At that time when I made this choice, I would do a show. Well, afterwards I would hand them a little like card and it was a website that they would go to. It was called Dying to Do Letterman. I thought it was a clever name. Uh, and said, you go to the site, and there was more com- more of my comedy. If you enjoyed me tonight, if people came up, I wouldn't, like, give it to everyone. But if people came up and they're like, oh, my God, you were so funny, I'd be like, well, if you think so, help me out here. Here's the thing. Go to this website. And then there was a link that you could email the people at Letterman so I could get their attention. And... Um, that was it. So it was just a website in the beginning. And then I would, people would start being like, Hey, I emailed Dave. Like what's going on? Did you hear, did you hear anything? So then my wife was like, you should put some updates on there, that kind of thing. So I would do little video updates and put them on there. And then a couple months after that, she goes, you should keep all those. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's something to do with this footage at the end. And then that couple, Joe and Biagio, who I had met earlier years before, heard about it, heard about the dining letterman. And they, and they actually, I remember they came to me and they go, Hey, we, we actually now we're doing really well in Hollywood. We know Warren Littlefield. Mm. He's he's actually the guy that gave Jay Leno the job at the Tonight Show instead of Letterman. Uh, they're like, would you be interested in doing Leno? And I was like, uh, no. You know, like not that I <laughs> not that I would not want to do Leno. Any comedian would want to do Leno, but it, it it would. You can't start a, a site saying I'm dying to do Letterman and be like, oh, but I'll take <laughs> I'll take Leno, right? I got tracked down so many flyers. You don't understand how many people I got to go find. (laughs) (laughs) Cross out the last, last name. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Just change it, changing emails, whatever it takes. Yeah. So, so that, that was the impetus in the beginning. And then, so that couple, after saying that they're like, if there's anything else we could do. And I said, well, listen, my wife suggested this, that I keep all this footage. I know you guys are in that business. And they said, and then they said, let's have dinner. And so they had never met my wife, Denise. Uh, and when we met, they like, they were like, this, this is really interesting what you're doing. And immediately they gave me like a, a high definition camera. They're like, start documenting, start doing, you know, like confessionals and let us know when you're, anything comes up with it, we would love to start shooting it. And that was the impetus of the, the documentary that again, my, my goal at that time, I said, I'm going to give myself a year to get on Letterman. Mm-hmm. there was no way I was going to make it in a year. It's like, I, again, that's probably what they were smart enough in the business. They probably knew it was going to take a lot longer a year, but they knew there's only two endings to this movie. Either I get on Letterman or, or, or I die trying, but they were up for it. They were up for that road either way. And you also end up, you get getting noticed. You know, like yes, yes. Almost through the, the, the nuisance technique in the beginning. Uh, yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. My idea was like, pull out all the stops, get noticed, and then in any in any form, and then they'll see that you're a good comedian. I, I had had people tell me like, oh yeah, you're, you're, you're the kind of comedian Letterman would like, and that would make me, this is before this all happened. Like it was like, okay, I'm on the right track. I'm, I'm doing this. So I was convinced the minute the Letterman people discovered me, they would see my comedy and be like, oh yes, please come up, come on the show, right? <laughs> and, and instead they took it the other way. They're like, oh, this is just like a kind of a make a wish thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I immediately got a cease and desist letter from the executive producer <laughs> of the David Letterman show, who I knew, like I was such a Letterman fan. I knew her name 
So when I saw it, I was like, oh, she wrote me a letter. Great. I, I didn't even think this is the time of email and phone, cell phones. Like, <laughs> if she had good news, she would have sent it that way. Like, if something's coming in the mail, it's bad news. Like, it, it's literally, <laughs> do not, you will not be on the show. It, literally, the word impossible was in the letter. Wow. So, again, I went through all those same feelings again. Was this stupid? I shouldn't have done this. This was, now I've made myself look like just a, a, a kid with cancer instead of like a comedian. Now that's what they think of me. But then slowly with my wife and my friends and everyone else was like, well, you got their attention. Okay, now prove that part wrong. Again, pre, you, you want to prove these oncologists wrong? You're going to live more than five years? Prove them wrong. That Make them realize you're not just like a, a, a sad sack charity case. And so that's what it was. I figured, okay, well, uh, I got their attention. Just ignore the impossible part. Mm -hmm. And then just started uh, sending them. Now that I had their information, I started sending them more comedy, more comedy, more comedy. The ups and downs over the place. At one point, I got to work with the, the booker at Letterman at, for a week. Uh, doing comedy and I was like oh this is it he'll see by the end he didn't watch one of my sets nothing wow. like I wow, think yeah. he was purposely <laughs> trying to stay away from it but I, I did get his email so I started sending him stuff and then there was like the first time he actually looked at one of my sets he would he like one joke but again it was almost it was a flashback to that brainwash thing like I was sad but I was always like also like all right I know what he wants. I know like the kind of joke he wants. Like I remember him saying on the phone, he's like, this won't work, this won't work, this won't work. But this joke, Dave would love. And I was like, oh, all right. Now I just got to replicate that for five minutes. <laughs> you know? So it was it was chasing that. Uh, so yeah, lots of rejection for uh, five more years. It took it took me a long time and, and uh, years of not hearing it, sending six sets to him over a year and hearing nothing from him uh thinking like oh this whole thing is is gone and then um uh, just just randomly i i sent a set one time chasing like i was chasing that one joke that he had said dave would like so i tried to replicate that joke over and over he i remember him saying like oh your other jokes they they've got too much acting a character out or you're doing voices or you're doing this uh or it's one long joke like that's not the kind of jokes we have on it so i was avoiding that but I had got so frustrated when I sent him a, a DVD one time. I sent him five minutes of this new stuff. And then at the end of it, I had done a 10-minute set. The, the, the last five minutes was all stuff I knew he would hate. It was one long joke about, about using a key at a, a hotel. And uh, I, I just got so upset. I was like, I'm not even going to edit it. I'm just sending him the, the DVD that I have, the 10 minutes. Because before that, I'd be like, here's what I'd like to do on the show. And now I was like, he's ignoring me. Just send him this thing, and he'll watch the first five minutes, or he won't. Yeah. And he gets back to me, and of course, just as, as as fate would have it, he didn't like the five minutes, but he goes, oh, the stuff at the end, though, which was all stuff he had said he didn't like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Story, story, physicality. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, voices, all this kind of stuff, one long bit. Uh, everything he said he didn't like, it, it, that's what he ended up liking. And uh, I, don't, I don't fault him for that. I, I do think it's like that thing where you, we all know a guy who's like, Oh yeah, my kind of girl. I like blondes, but he's married to a brunette. Like it's just when you when you see it, you see it, right? When you when you when you know what you like, you it's obvious. And um, even though this 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 bit, so that that was the way he called me up and said, "Hey, this is it. You're you're going to be on." And uh, yeah, it was yeah one of the greatest days of my life. It's, I do think it's fascinating that as you were chasing what he might like, you were getting continually rejected. But the thing that it was a joke that was on your own terms was what yes. they did. And there's like, I, I think there's, this is a theme that's come up when we've talked 
you know, I've talked to other comics is like the truest material ends up being the ones that are received the best. Um, yeah. It's just it's right. really, really interesting. I didn't know that part of it. Yeah. And it's just, like you said, the true, truest to yourself. Uh, like, yeah, it was just a joke. And again, and also a little bit of, I think some of the rebellion or the fuck it attitude was just like, mm -hmm. I'm not editing this out. I'm so over it. And again, there was, there was the luck part of that, uh, just leaving it on there. But yeah, just just like, well, this this is this is my thing. And yeah, and he got to see it. And you're right. There was probably something in it that that first five minutes felt needy and felt like I'm trying to do something you want. And then all of a sudden there was a casualness to the next five minutes because it was was what uh, my stuff. Yeah. So so you get on Letterman. Talk a little bit about what that experience was like. Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, I'm just an amazing day. And I, I had talked part of the documentary is, is me talking to other people who have done Letterman. So like Ray Romano, Brian Regan, mm. Kevin Nealon, Arch Barker, all these Gaffigan. people who, who had done, yeah, Jim Gaffigan, uh, who had done it. So I had heard all these stories about doing Letterman. So then now, you know, again, I, I, I imagined it happening, but now it was real. I had a date. I knew when I was supposed to be there, but now all these stories of these other people having done it, them getting bumped, them getting stories of, of people I love. Nick Griffin had a story of, of having the mic in his hand and he was there, you know, the guy's holding the, the curtain to let him out. And then, and then the guy grabbing the microphone, the, the, mm -hmm. the Biff, if you remember the show, grabbing the microphone from him and being like, it's not happening. Like wow. it was just something went wrong or something. And it, it, like, you're that close to walking out on stage. So all of that, uh, Ray Romano has one of driving in, he's on the bridge into New York city and he gets the call that yank, no, it's not going to happen today. So then you're like, it, okay, yes, they said yes, but is it, will it really happen? So there's the nervousness around it. Uh, for whatever reason that day, I, 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 I was not nervous. I don't know what it was. And uh, I think PJ will back to, so we've talked about this before. I get nervous sometimes at like a, at a, a coffee shop, open mic. There's just no randomness to it of why sometimes you, you feel the stakes are higher. I don't know. Uh, or a new club. A lot of times, like it, it, it feels weird. You're not used to the dimensions. But I, I remember going there that day and Eddie Brella Booker took me out and he showed me the star. You'll walk out. Here's where you stand. You know, the band will be here. And then, and, and then he, he goes, okay, let's go. I'll take you back to the dressing room. And I was like, can I stay here? And he's like, what do you mean? And I was like, I just like to stand here for, so that I feel, so when I come out here later, I feel like it feels like home rather than you just showing me. And he's like, yeah, I got to go. He's like, stay here as long as you want. People are going to be filing in soon. And uh, I did, I just stood there and took it all in and, and kept looking like where the, you know, the band was and where the thing, so that when I came out later, it felt routine. It didn't feel like the first time. And I think that was valuable. And then, yeah, being backstage with Biff before the show, and then uh, the the guest before me was Neil Patrick Harris, Doogie Howser, you know, uh, and he he was he was super funny that night, which was probably great because mm -hmm. then he's like your warm up act, but it was also yeah. a little bit like, well, he's famous and funny, you know what I mean? Like you're going out there alone, not many people not knowing who you are. Right, 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 right. And and they extended him a segment, so I was like, oh shit, I'm gonna get bumped. They're gonna <laughs> bump me for Doogie Howser. Right? Doogie Howser. So doogie and uh but yeah finally uh you know he got done he came off and he came over uh and he was like oh you're the comedian i can't wait to see it he was super nice then i'm like looking at biff who's got the headset on and he's he's just standing there he had, he was in the navy so we, we kind of bonded over that we were talking about it and uh i kept waiting for him to like reach his ear like something was coming in like i'm getting bumped and nothing happened and then uh 
yeah, just went out and it was so great. Um, you're performing again. It's the Ed Sullivan theater. It's where the Beatles and, uh, uh, Elvis played mm -hmm. to this theater. And, and I, I started thinking it's my favorite thing about comedy that I didn't know before comedy is how many things you can think about at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. in comedy, you could be telling your joke. You can be thinking how that last joke you told bombed or didn't get what it deserved. You're thinking about the next joke you're going to do and be like, don't forget, you want to do that new thing you added there where you make the face when you say blue, you know, and, you know, and you got to be in the moment of what you're doing now, acting that out. And it's all going through your head at the same time. So I remember being on the stage and it was going well. I had heard Dave laugh behind me. I heard Paul was really laughing and someone else in the band. And then, of course, the crowd is, is, is clapping. They're, they're, they're awesome. And I remember thinking in my head, because they ask you, they're like, what's the, what's the last word you're going to think? I can't remember what my last word is. Uh, um, swipe it or something like that. Stick it in and don't, don't look was the last word. And when you, I say, don't look, the band's going to kick in when I say those last words. But in my head, I was like, it was going so well. I was like, just go on to a different joke. What are they going to do? Like it, I had felt like I won so much at that point. And I was like, you, you made it here. Like do, do those jokes that they, that you wanted to do that, that they said weren't good enough for the show or weren't Dave's type that you've always wanted to do on the show. Just, just do another five. What are they going to do? Like at some point they're going to be scrambling, but I, that's all going through my head. And then like, I'm literally thinking about going long. Like, what are they going to, are they going to hook you? Are the, the camera's going to go off? Is someone going to run out? But I'm thinking that. And then I also, all of a sudden, like common sense comes in and I'm like, Hey idiot, you're, you're on TV right now. Get out of your head. Like, you're, you focus on what you're doing right now. And I actually do make a mistake. I screw up. Uh, I can't remember what it is. I haven't, I haven't watched the set in a while, but I, I do screw up a line in there. There's a, there's a logic fault where you, you wouldn't see it, but I know it because I know the joke so right. well. Um, but, and if, I think that was part of it because I'm, I'm so often in the air in my head there. So uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing day. Uh, um, it, it's crazy. I don't want to tell too much from the, from the documentary. There's some weird stuff that goes on with it that my wife ends up not be able to make it. And I expected her to be there. Uh, but uh, I had my, my mom and, uh, some friends there, uh, if who, who ended up coming to the show and we all went out to eat afterwards. And then me and my friend Gary stayed up to like four in the morning, just walking around, uh, Times Square and, uh, eating pizza and just, like not wanting the day to end it, it, it was magical mm. it was really yeah one of those things and i, I kind of got a double dose because they they taped two shows that day so it was a tuesday but mine didn't air till friday so i kind of got two lettermans i got the day of and then I, I got to be back friday and then we had a party at my house and, and watched it when it when it came on so it was nice that it wasn't just one day it was a couple, it was a whole week really of fun so yeah it was amazing but yeah then then there's then there's like <sighs> okay, what now? <laughs> <laughs> this moment when you stepped out on the stage is, is another tentpole, I think, in a comic because your wife didn't get to be there. Yeah. You're by yourself <laughs> and you got to walk out there. You walked into the laun laundromat by yourself. Yeah. You looked at the calendar by yourself. Mm -hmm. There's, and I had an acting teacher who said something to me years ago, and I always, if you do all the work you can and then let it go. Mm -hmm. And when I, look at your story and everything you went through up until this moment yeah. you're a perfect example of that right and i i to that point i think that's that's the closest I, anyone's come to encapsulating why i wasn't nervous that day because i i it felt like that already it felt like 
you had done this. This is the destination is, is opening that curtain, walking out there, but you've done everything to get there. You've learned to do this thing. You said you were going to do you do the ups and downs of it all. You've learned to be good at it and you're ready for this. You've practiced hundreds of <laughs> thousands of times. I ran through that set by either on stage or in my uh, room, you know, uh, leading up to it. Uh, I knew it backwards and forwards. Uh, and yeah, the, uh, there's just that confidence of, of, yeah, putting in that work, knowing it, and then, yeah, letting it go. And that's how it felt when I walked on stage. I really think that's why I wasn't nervous because it was like, th- yeah, it's done. It's, it's already, it's almost like you're on the other side of it. And now not to give out any spoilers, but the part the Sam wants to go to, you lived. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) A walking spoiler alert, yeah. (laughs) He's he's here Uh, plugging his movie. Well, how did this happen? Sam Sam kept calling me, he goes, how's this gonna end? (laughs) Yes, right, right. What's going to happen? Well, I think Steve's going to pull out. uh, (laughs) Um, But I think the thing that's interesting, and you you said it earlier in the interview, and and, and I know you've been quoted as saying this before, but you know, you stop chasing your dreams, you're already dead. Like, you accomplished your ultimate dream, right? Like, like, this is the thing you've said you want to do since you were 12. It's the thing that you said, if I have five years to live, I'm going to do this yeah okay and you've told the story about what yeah. that five years would look like what have the 10 years since then look like for you mm. yeah well look at <laughs> it obviously not good uh, <laughs> uh yeah that's a that's a tough thing because i remember <clears throat> i'm gonna fast forward just a little bit so one of the things that saved me because that, that is a big thing and it's 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 something in all honesty, I, I'm still dealing with today, and it, it feels almost, um, I don't know what the word, to, to, to label it, but there there is some, uh, mm. I don't know to it, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't have a, a perfect answer to it, uh, because, yeah, I was all in on this thing. It was a, 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 every marble out for it, uh, this dream, and then to accomplish it, that, that was every focus. Uh, one of the things that helped is that there was this couple, this, these two filmmakers who had been documenting everything. So neatly, we had something else to focus on immediately. They had the ending of their film. They, they had told me, they're like, we, thank God it ended this way. We thought either the, it ends with you dying and we have this nice idea that someone spent their life, whatever time they had left chasing this, even though it didn't happen, or you make it to the Letterman show. And you, so we have a happy ending. Um, so now there was the time to put that footage together. We had 300 hours of footage over those, those five plus years. Uh, so, uh, we had some, I had something immediately to focus on instead. So I had reached this peak, which was great. And then, yeah, the, you know, the movies can't, can't be the same peak, but it was at least something to do. It was an assignment I had to keep busy afterwards. Um, so fast forward about two years from that when we're showing the movie now it's out and we're showing it film festivals and winning awards for it it was great and and again uh it filled in that blank where i didn't have to think about that like what now uh and we're at film festivals and that's what people started asking okay you did this you're still alive like what now what do you do you 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 look healthy and uh and i i i was like yeah i don't know i guess Mm -hmm. i was ignoring it you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. not thinking it because i did have something to fill it in and uh, so now uh, the past eight years since that, since the movie came out, like it has, it's been 
a, a guessing game a bit, trying to find, I mean, I have other goals. I have other, <clears throat> I had other TV shows I wanted to be on that I was able to get on. I had other things. I ended up writing for Ellen DeGeneres, uh, th- you know, some other career goals that I have, but there's nothing to that level of Letterman. There's just not. And uh, again, we all know movies. That's why it just goes to happily ever after, because you, you can't, once you get to that, some gigantic goal of a, of something like that, you you can't tell more of a story. That's why the 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 last Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, <laughs> sucks because there's 20 minutes at the end that, that we don't need. Like stop once right. one, once once uh, whatever his name says uh, the the Hobbit shouldn't bow to anyone. The movie should end. I'm going on a tangent here, but the point is you you end at a high point. That's that's my high point. I'd probably yeah. If I if I even if I live to 80, that's most likely going to be the high point of my life. But life yeah. goes on after it. Um, so I, I filled it in with other goals and other things and other kind of work I want to do. And I've been lucky, lucky to make that happen. But yeah, there is, there is, there's never, I I don't know. I've, I haven't found anything to replace it with that, that has given me that same passion. Like, I feel like there's something very, um, it's like very American about this is like we focus on the high point and then we mm-hmm. don't ask what yeah. happens after. Right. Yes. hundred percent. Even like with ASAP, when I was running ASAP, people would see, you know, the, the veterans and family members in our program on stage doing well. And we would yeah. do these panels, which PJ has been a part of, and they're very moving. And I would always say, it's like, it's not what, it's not about this moment. It's about all the moments afterwards and, and having that community. So like, I was wondering, do you ever have, did you have a moment of like, okay, well, like this chasing of a dream, like maybe that's not the orientation that makes sense in this next kind of stage of my, my life. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to put it. And uh, I, I think I'd mentioned that there's a, there's a, a, I always go back to this, this F. Scott Fitzgerald, who did Gatsby, has this quote that uh, in American life, there are no second acts. And, and uh, I think it's the <laughs> stupidest quote I've ever heard in my yeah. life because literally yeah. every, every American story has like five acts. There's always someone you think is gone and then 30 years later they come back. And, and again, I think you're right. I think it's just the framing of it. It's the framing of, of, of the peak. And, and yeah, probably career-wise, I'm never going to uh, get bigger than that peak. But I've, I've had moments since that... Uh, this sounds strange. We're, we're in the midst of this for, for uh, uh, people that maybe hear this later, but the, the coronavirus going on now, and, and I have no idea what's on the other side of this. It's, it's right. so strange. As a comedian, I don't know what comedy clubs are going to be around. I don't know if there's going to be corporates or clubs or cruises or all the places we perform, what any of those places are going to go. But this is also like, I've, I've been able to kind of ignore it. It's, it's also been a good time to focus on those other things. I've got to spend more time with my wife than I ever have in the, these past few months. Uh, my friends, I've got to spend a lot more time with them because they have the free time. Uh, I've, I've got to work out and get outside and, uh, you know, enjoy California, which uh, that I love living in and get to the beach. And, and I, I just, in a crazy screwy time of not knowing what the future brings, I'm pretty happy right now. So it is, it is, there is a lot of in the framing of it, like, yeah, on the, on the, on that career angle. Cause we do, that's the American thing, right? We, we put success is all related to uh, money or accomplishment uh, uh, of your job rather than it being like, are you doing what you want? Or are you happy with it? Like that, that, that should be the, the more Zen 
kind of you know, an Easter feeling of it, right? Um, like, how do you, yeah, how do you feel? Are you happy? Are you, are you, you know, you feel fulfilled? And uh, so it is, it's, a, and, and I think that's fair to change those things. Like, I wouldn't have thought that in those five years chasing that dream. Uh, to just worry about like, oh, I did, I married someone who obviously <laughs> loves me and, you know, and let that be enough. It, it still had to be Letterman. But I, I think, I think the goalposts can change in your life and they, they, they have to, uh, or else you, you, you lead a very, um, you know, one road life uh, of like, mm-hmm. okay, what's next? What's next? What's next career wise? And, 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 you know, uh, you, you hopefully have more to it. You tell this Letterman story all the time, right? Like we all, we have our stories that yeah. we tell and that we tell. Like, yeah, I guess yeah. like, I have two questions. One, do you get tired of telling that story? And two, like, do, do you want to be defined by more than this like dying to do Letterman narrative now? Yeah, great. two great questions. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's something I'm immensely proud of. It's something uh, at the same time, part of me wants to forget. I, I never tell anyone that I meet uh, the story until it kind of comes up. I, there, there's been people I've known for a couple of years, some comedians I know, and we're, we'll be talking and they, they, they've heard of the story, but not seen the documentary uh, or something. So we'll get to it. And then, you know, I, like I said, I've been friends with a comedian for a couple of years and then I'll be like, Oh yeah, well the, the, they'll mention it. I'll be like, "That's me," and they'll be like, "Wait, what? You're you're the guy?" And it like the the whole idea is I don't I don't want that to define me. I, I'm probably when it comes up, I'm happy to share this. There's some some things I've had so many people that that have been inspired by the story uh, who've wrote me. I, I I'm lucky to have these people who who saw the movie or read the book or met me uh, when we were doing screenings of it and. Uh, send me stuff that, that they're like, they told me at the, in the moment, we had these buttons we would do and they, they said, I'm dying to, and then it was blank. And they would, they would, mm. someone would be like, I'm dying to write a book. I'm dying to ride across the Sahara on a camel, you know, that kind of thing. And then these people send me stuff on Facebook and the, the, it's their Amazing. book that they wrote in the wake of that. And so uh, I was inspired by other people. It's, it, it feels awesome to inspire others and then see them, create that thing so i love that angle of it but i'm also a cynical comedian i i am i am a cynical comedian who uh, if i heard the story about someone else i'd be like yeah oh he's still alive yeah he's still still going obviously he wasn't dying the rest you know what i mean i i know i've met right, people right. who are like looking at me like he seems pretty healthy like doesn't see you know what i mean like it doesn't seem as bad as that so i do my best to uh yeah, if someone knows me through that, like I, I, I share the story. If they, if they don't, I like them to get to know me first without the story, because uh, I think it just, you know, again, then it, then it just adds something. And, and I like to kind of, yeah, I guess have it both ways to answer your question. Like when it, when it not serves me, but when it, uh, when it inspires someone, yeah, uh, I, I, I love talking about it. But when uh, one-on-one, I, I, I love people to know me for something else and then later be like, oh, yeah, that's, well, that's a part of it. That's even cooler that I knew that guy and, and liked him and, and thought he was funny. And then mm-hmm. I learned this other, that that, that was the guy. Um, so, yeah, but it's a weird, it's a weird uh, juggling of it uh, sometimes. Well, yeah. well you know, to speak to that, which I find this is pretty amazing about our journey because we met 
2004. Yeah. We did 33 shows in 23 days in Iraq yeah, together. Yeah. Um, you're the first person I was with where we got shot at, uh, yeah. standing on stage, mortars came. We, yeah. we, we were in it, and I knew out of the gate, I love this guy. We're going we're gonna to be friends forever. Yeah. And then I moved to New York. Uh, I, w- I went to New York, and we kind of lo- lost touch, and I went on my journey to do my, my, my stuff. And, and then I came back to L.A., and we reconnected, and you, you know, told me about the movie, and I went up yeah. to Sunset. And I brought a guy I went to theater school with who was going to be a comedian. Went and we watched it, yeah. And it like made me feel like I wasn't a good friend. Oh no, not at all. You, you, I, 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 that that's awful. I hope you didn't feel that way. No, and I'll tell you why. Just because, because it was one of these things where I was like, "Damn, I love this guy. He went through all this, and I'm over here dealing with my own shit, mm-hmm. trying to do it." And I made like a vow because I think it'd been like I don't know, like maybe like three or four years since we had talked now. So it's like, yeah. well, I got to make sure that I stay in touch with him, you know? And then two years later, we reconnected. So I moved yeah. it up a year. <laughs> right. No, right. but it was one of these things. <laughs> it, it was one of these things where, and just rewatching it uh, was just like, man, that's not, that's not who you're defined mm. to me. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, a, that's it, a, yeah. It, yeah. It hurt me as a friend. Just go, God, man, you want to be there for your friends, especially people that you love like you. But that's not who you are in my books. Oh, thanks, PJ. That makes me and that makes me feel really, really, really good. And you're 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 a great friend for for even having that that thought. Um, to to Sam's question on that, and and this I think hopefully will make you feel a little better on that angle. I I was defensive of my friends on that angle of protecting them from that. Like I had friends who who lived two doors down from me. Who were like, wow! I can really tell in that scene how down and depressed you are, and I didn't know that mm. about you. Then you always seem like an upbeat guy. And again, we all have, you know, the face we put on outwardly. It, it, it's the thing uh, you guys know it from from dealing with people who've been through trauma and and stuff like that. Right. There's that that the part of depression mm. is the alone. It's the the by yourself and uh, you know. Again, that's why you 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 surround yourself with friends. It's great, but you, they can't be there all the time, right. and and you that's that's when it seeps in, and that's when you're by yourself and you have these awful thoughts, and um, so yeah, I I purposely I you you could have been living with me and and not not experienced it because I I would have protected you from it like I it was my my crutch or my uh, thing so uh, yeah you you were exactly what a good friend would be was 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 to not share that with me if that makes sense like they mm-hmm. like you you can only distract someone I think who's depressed I mean I'm not a therapist and I'm, I, there, there's I, I don't mean to compare any of what I went through to the different levels I remember some I don't want to name PJ knows the guy so, but I'm not going to name him uh, but I remember when Robin Williams died I happened to be on the road with some guy and uh, he, he put some stupid tweet out where he was like, I can't believe he killed himself. He's not thinking of his family and friends. What a, what a jerk and blah, blah. And people just jumped all over this guy. And then we were riding. He's like, he's like, Steve, you're a level headed guy. Like I just thought what I was saying, I thought that was fair. And like, I, I, I was depressed and I thought about killing myself, but I didn't do it. And I was like, how, how can you not think that there might be a never, another mm. level of depression that you didn't right. get to? Like, what are yeah. you even talking about? Are you not that smart? Like, so uh, th- I'm at least, I'm not coming up with myself smart, but I know that there's, there's different levels of it. And 
we all deal with it for sure on our own. Um, and some of us have a, a better capacity to handle it. Some of us just never get to the depths. Um, but again, that I'm here, PJ, is, is a testament to your friendship at some level. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. that, that we are still, that we're friends here 20 years later. Um, yeah, it, 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 that, that stuff meant to me. That's, that's, that's part of the reason that, that, that got me through all that. Uh, but yeah, there's, you, you did everything you, you, you could. So yeah. Um, it's, I'm not looking for forgiveness. forgiveness. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> turned into a confessional with, with Father Steve. No, but what I, I really, it was one of those things where, you know, uh, when you do something like when you go overseas and you, you do it, Steve was in the Navy. We, yeah. We bonded on these trips and you go, and he had that same passion of like, you know, there were some people, I'm not going to get into details on that trip, but there were some people there who, who were just like wanting to check something off. And just, but Steve was the guy who was like, look, man, every single one of these shows, we got to give 110% because this is how important it is. And the show that always steps, sticks out to me was we were in Djibouti. It was 110 degrees, 90% humidity, and we were <laughs> drenched, yeah. drenched, giving everything to these troops. And that and and you were right there drenched. I, have a, I think I have a picture. I'll have to find it of us we're drenched. Just, yeah. And we get everything in a place no one was going to see us except for people we had so much respect and thankfulness for. And that's why I think you're one of these people that people gravitate to in a way, because that's how you carry stuff. It's a testament to your character, the person uh, that you are. And uh, dude, I just love you. It's just great. Well, I I love you too, buddy. And I I remember those shows. Yeah. Specifically. (laughs) Because again, I, I am a, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a talker comedian. It's, there's nothing funnier. I, I, I feel bad for anyone who sees PJ. You know what a great performer he is, uh, but he's so physical. The funniest thing to see is him be physical in uh, <laughs> 130 degree humidity and 120 degree heat. Like to, 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 to me go up there and talk into a microphone for 20 minutes and, and then in the back of my head be thinking, I can't wait to see PJ up here sweating his ass off in this gross thing like it's just great it's 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 so uh, <laughs> it's so so funny i remember uh to let you know that there's those things those those touchstones again both ways uh i remember coming to see your one-man show pj here in, in la and and that was one of the things that inspired me in a, a downtime where you know again it's a it's a a kind of uh thing you, you, sometimes we just don't voice things and that's what it, why i want to go back to saying that that i think the sharing portion of of what uh, a lot of our lives has become is a valuable thing that that again if if i had went through this today it would have been something i shared if i had the idea there's there's a 12 year old kid out there who who gets facebook for the first time from his parents and and would see a comedian and be like i want to do this when i'm a, a grown-up you know what i mean i didn't i wouldn't i didn't have the balls to say that when i was 12 years old to anyone and now it's just more uh, prevalent. And I know it, it, it sucks when we see everyone sharing their, you know, what they had for dinner last night, uh, you know, who, who, who cares, but there's the other side of it too, where these connections get made and we're much more, uh, willing to help people, uh, than we used to be like, yeah, it's never going to happen. We're, we're much more a society of like, you can make that happen, you know? And, and, and again, that might be bad in some ways too, but I, I think there's more possibility today. In your journey, you had two impossibles. Mm. You had a, a, a health impossible mm. and a comedic impossible. Yeah. You know, and I, I had this feeling of like the comedy helped. Yeah. 
you know, you hear about how laughter and having a goal and all the, uh, uh, all these things like move ahead. But I, yeah. I, I've just seen laughter and comedy help so many people. And when I revisited your, your, your story, I, those two impossibles and, and that drive and that laughter and hearing it, like, my, I mean, do you feel like that was part of your healing? Yeah, I, I, I do. And, and not to the point uh, of, of like, you know, uh, laughter heals, it's the best medicine, all that kind of stuff. Like, right, 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 right. Right. I know, I know what you're, I know you're not saying that, but I was just saying that's the, you know, of course the cliche, like, yeah, uh, the, uh, it's the medicine that's kept me here, the real medicine, you know what I mean? It, right, it, right, 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 right. But that being said, because I've thought about this a lot, I, I uh, you know, again, I get to I get to go up and share laughter with people uh, most nights. I get to hear their laughter back. I get to laugh with with my friends and the comedians who are the funniest people, you know, in the world that, you know, take it to a different level um, and, and, and just kill me. And you get to see your friends be funny. It's, it's the best. And I almost think of it as a. Uh, 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 I don't know if you read Steve, it's a twist on Steve Martin's born standing up. He says like he got into the reason he got in some people asked him why he got into entertainment. He's like, well, why wouldn't you want to get into entertainment? You know what I mean? Like, it just seems so common sense. Like to Sam's point about the deathbed, the looking back, like, I don't know in the end, if there's, we, we can't quantify it. I can't, I can't say that it's made me healthier or, or uh, uh, helped me heal, or that's what's helped me psyche or, or bump me out of depression when I have it or those kind of things. But why wouldn't you want your life to be that way? Why, why, <laughs> why wouldn't I want it to be filled with the laughter of being on stage and sharing that each night? And you know what I mean? If, if you got to look back, you, no one would choose the depression angle, right? Right. You, right. you remember every time you would remember the time you and I were making fun of the guy who sat on the helicopter in the area we told him not to. Oh. And then he got sand in his ear, like, like just making fun of that guy. Like, again, like that's, that's, those are the things you would choose that way every time. So every time. It, it's, it's just the better road, whether, whether anyone if, in 3000 years never finds the part to say that laughter helps in healing. It's just the better way. It's what you want to heal mm. for in the first place, right? And so you can be that. on that road. And I think that's actually a perfect transition to our, our closing question. So Steve, how do you how do you want to be remembered? This is this goes back to your earlier thing, Sam. We were talking about like how things can change, how one thing can be the thing you're aiming for. And then later it you you don't have to aim to that high. Um, I remember when Mike Singletary, I'm a Chicago Bears fan. Mike Singletary is one of the greatest linebackers ever, 85 Bears. And I remember him retiring and someone asking him that. And he was on the field. You know, he's retiring from football as one of the greatest all time. And, and him saying, like, he wanted to be remembered as a family man and everything. And I was like, well, this is bullshit. Like, what are you talking about? You want to be remembered as as this this menace in the backfield. What are you talking about? Like, you know? But I, I kind of get it now. I get it. Like the the, the value changes. Um, yeah, I I want I want I want to be remembered. Yeah, as, as a good friend, as a as as someone someone you could laugh with. Of course, I I on the career wise. Yeah, you want to be remembered as as a as a you know. At one point, I wanted to be one of the greatest comedians of all time. Now, you know, I'm like okay. I I, I hope people quote my jokes after I'm gone. Like, I hope so. there, there's a couple that still stick around and people are like, Oh, this guy, this guy was a great writer, you know, those kind of things. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, yeah, the, the friendship and the love and the family part, uh, that, that, that seems to take it o- over more. Um, 
yeah, a, a, a good guy that would help you if you needed it. I think that 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 ends up being as, about as much as so much is out of our control, right? That that is one thing. But I I hope I've covered it. How lucky I, I I've been with everything, both both medically and then career wise, and even the 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 trek to Letterman. How much luck and help I got from other people, um, things being at the right time. So I I feel there's so much luck involved in life, anyways. That that what you can really control out of it is so little, and uh, those those two things is uh, are, are are you nice in general? Are you nice to people? And can, did you help people when you can? That's 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 two things I know I can control. And if, if people said that afterwards, that I think that'd be enough. I can vouch for that. You're one of the best dudes to be around. Oh, so. awesome! Thanks, PJ. Back at yeah, I think that's that that's I think that's why we're we're, we're buddies. It's something we recognized in each other. Uh, immediate besides the Navy tie, it's like, yeah, you're like, cause again, I know, I know some guys I knew in the Navy that I'm like, that guy was a douche, like, but immediately <laughs> like, <laughs> I like it. PJ was a PJ, PJ and I would have been best buddies at, wherever we had met. Yeah. I think you guys are, you guys are all right. <laughs> Thanks Sam. <laughs> no, seriously, Steve, thank you so much. This is awesome. Really appreciate you. Dude, you're awesome. Really. It was awesome. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks. We have a lot of people to thank for this latest episode of In Stitches. First, to Steve Maison for joining us, for sharing parts of his story that have been told, but also a lot of parts of his story and experience that have been told. We're just really appreciative for him. Also grateful for our executive producer, David Bobro, for all the work he puts in from start to finish on these episodes. And our comms team, uh, Matt Condon and Kristen Howard. Most of all, thank you to all of you for continuing to join in, continuing to listen, and continuing to spread the word. We really have been grateful for you and continue to be grateful for you. Yes, thank you guys very, very much. And you know where you can find us on all the social media. We are on uh, Facebook page. We got Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and we appreciate all the messages we're getting, all the retweets, and all the great reviews you guys have been leaving. Please keep spreading the word about InStitches because we want to keep bringing you interesting conversations and interesting people. So thank you. Uh, this has been In Stitches.